Hello, Duncan Green here. Um, it's another grey, grim day, but it's December, which means it's nearly 2021 and the sunlit uplands are coming and it can't possibly be as bad as this year. Um, let's catch up with the blogs on From Poverty to Power uh, this week. The first post was about our emergent agency project. So we've got this project trying to look at and identify patterns in how people are organising in response to COVID. Uh, it's only been going for a couple of months and it's already shaping up nicely. We've identified clusters um, of issues you know, where several people are interested you know, uh, um, from our conversations. And this week we had the first conversations in these clusters. Massive variety between them, different styles, different interests, just as it should be. We had eight clusters to begin with, informal leaders versus the state. So everything from criminal gangs to informal forms of taxation, all sorts of things. Uh, children and youth, HIV, women's rights organisations, faith organisations, social movements, livelihoods and education. And each of those groups is going to grow and spin off and then feed back into the overall project once they start to, you know, arrive at some findings about what they're seeing in their particular part of the organizational universe around COVID. Um, <clears throat> they're asking questions like, you know, what is emerging? What aspects are likely to be lasting and what are ephemeral? What's surprising about what we're seeing? And of course, there'll be lots of attempts to typologize this, come up with, you know, um, uh, overarching sort of uh, frameworks for locating all these different experiences. We just kicked off with one where on the, it's a two by two, which is how I all usually work. On the X axis you have, is it old needs or new needs? And on the Y axis is, is are these existing responses or organizations or are they new responses and organizations? So, you know, you might have old needs and existing responses where they're just expanding what they're doing, say, you know, food banks. They might have new needs uh, and existing responses. So that's where existing organizations are pivoting to new things and so on. So each of the yeah, a two by two always produces four quadrants and then you can try and sort of situate things in those quadrants. So that's the kind of thinking I think we'll start doing once we get these clusters up and running. Second post was about rubber ducks, actually. Um, so I was really struck um, with the news from the protests in Thailand, the protests against the monarchy and calling for constitutional reform, that the protests suddenly all appeared with these giant inflatable rubber ducks. And they started using them against the water cannon, which were being used by the police. But they also look really funny. Um, so <clears throat> I, I sort of... Uh, looked at this and the, lots of memes around rubber ducks and there's just you know and it's a lot of fun and it made me it reminded me of a great book I read a few years ago Blueprint for Re Revolution by the Serb Serbian activist Serja Popovic and he sort of distills his lessons from fermenting protest in several countries including Serbia um, and he had a whole chapter on laughtivism uh, what he called you know uh, laughing your way to victory and pointed out that, you know, humour is cool. It actually, you know, it's much more fun to be part of a protest that is um, that is laughing at the authorities than, than something that is ter terribly serious and sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, boring. Um, so, the, so numbers of protesters improve it. And it also gets rid of fear. So Mark Twain, the famous author, wrote, uh, against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. 
and and in particular the police i think and the security forces are often much happier repressing angry demonstrators than being laughed at they really don't like being laughed at and popovich has all these examples the one i really like is um in poland in 1982 the state control of the uh, of tv news was absolutely uh, uh total and you were supposed to have you know be in front of the tv um, listening to the news. So people started taking their TVs out for a walk at the time when the news was on in a pram. And, you know, what do you do if you're a policeman and someone's doing that? Or, or concealing loudspeakers in piles of garbage at the start of the Syrian protest before it all went horribly wrong so that the police would suddenly hear these anti-Assad messages coming out of the muck and have to start rooting through the garbage to find the loud these mini loudspeakers they put there, and everybody so everybody they just looked ridiculous, you know. So that use of humour, I think, is a really uh, useful and often is or neglected aspect of campaigning and protest movements. Third post was a links I liked. I'll pick out a couple. Um, this is sort of yeah things I've spotted on social media and tweeted over the previous week. So the first one, researchers left 17,000 wallets on the streets of 355 cities in about 30 countries, some empty and some with money in, and just saw what people did with them. Um, contrary, contrary to the predictions of economists, I mean, do economists' predictions ever come right? I don't know. Anyway, contrary to their predictions, people everywhere were more likely to return wallets with money in them. Okay, so that's first finding. But the rates also varied massively, and I put the um, yeah the, the the chart up on the on the blog. The lowest reporting rate was China, which is interesting. The highest reporting rate is Switzerland, which is less interesting because the Swiss are always so you know correct about everything. But uh, and the UK and the US were in the middle of thirty countries. The only country where people were less likely to return wallets uh, with money in them was Mexico. And a Mexican person came on Twitter and said, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That's what Mexico's like. Um, but just really interesting. What an experiment. 17,000 wallets in 355 cities. That's an amazing experiment. Um, and then the second one was, um, yet again, we are discussing why the polls called the US election wrong. Um, uh, not massively out, but significantly out. And there's a really interesting piece which Ranil Desanayake uh, tweeted on um, the link with social isolation. So if people are isolated, if they don't have any significant sort of social contacts, they're less likely to participate in surveys. They're more closed in. And according to this piece, 17% of Americans, Americans reported having no one they were close with. And that's up from 9% in 2013. So it's nearly doubled in the last seven years. So you've got one in six Americans saying they have, uh, yeah, they're socially isolated. They are less likely to respond to polls, and the crucial bit: they are much more likely to vote for Donald Trump. So that could be part of the explanation about why the Trumps, why the polls underestimated the support for Donald Trump. Fourth post was a nice piece of work from uh, Carnegie Endowment, which is doing some really good pub, um, uh, reports on different aspects of the politics of the COVID crisis. This one was on how the pandemic is influencing the ecosystem on open government. So you have this massive network of NGOs, civil society organisations, activists, politicians, writers, academics on open government. So transparency, accountability, access to information, all that kind of cluster of issues. 
Carnegie did interviews with 125 civil society leaders in 20 countries. Um, published a paper, and this is, a, 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 you know, I summarised it on the blog. Um, and what they find is that the pandemic has generated a surge in public demand for government transparency and accountability. So governments suddenly are spending much more and on a very visible product, PPE, vaccines, whatever it is, or, or you know, food, support for people who are locked down, all sorts of things. And people want to know where the money's going. Um, but the response is quite lopsided. So what they found is that, you know, there's this demand for more scrutiny. Activists have been talking and deepening relationships with people they already knew before the pandemic. So partnerships have with ex within existing networks have deepened, but people aren't, it's really hard to make new relationships. You don't have any of those chance encounters, going for a coffee after a meeting or a seminar or a protest. So that, that spontaneity, which generates new relationships has, has really dropped. So it's all getting a bit stuck in place. So you're getting deeper partnerships amongst the existing uh, links in the ecosystem, but not new ones. I thought that that rang true to me anyway. Then the last piece of the, of the week was uh, actually a report by a friend of mine, James Painter, for Oxfam Bolivia. Oxfam Bolivia um, uh, are very concerned about what's going on with climate change in Bolivia. Um, all sorts of things from uh, desertification to the glaciers which supply the water for La Paz melting to all sorts of things. In 2009, they funded James to come and write a report and they wanted him to come back and see what, had, what was the same and what had changed. And I wish more people would do this. You Instead of always hopping from one thing to another, you actually say, okay, we did a report 10 years ago, which found some interesting stuff. Let's go back and see what's changed. So the, the conclusions on, on this new report, which is in both Spanish and English, um, many of the testimonies co uh, collected on the 2020 visit were similar to those heard during the first visit in 2009. In particular, the repeated experiences of hotter temperatures unpredictable or shorter periods of rainfall, sudden downpours and more droughts were a common refrain in all three regions we visited. And in some cases, local people said these weather patterns were getting worse. Extreme weather uh, events have continued, flooding, um, uh, droughts, but also massive wild uh, forest fires in Chiquitania uh, last year, uh, all exacerbated by a changing climate. But a couple of things would, were either new or, or, or we missed them in 2009. Maybe they weren't detectable. Or maybe they, we just didn't look in the right places. So firstly, the impact on urban residents. Uh, so 70% of the Bolivian population now live in uh, urban areas, 50% in, in, a, in three large you know, met metropolitan areas. And what is happening now is you get these islas de calor, heat islands, um, so they are urban zones where you know there's a concentration of cement buildings, tarmac roads, little vegetation, and they get intense heat waves because there's no buffer uh, against uh, the heat. Um, and they're also very vulnerable to sudden changes in rainfall. So uh, that's one thing, these heat islands. Also absent were more details of the complex links between climate change and other environmental problems and their impact on poorer people. Water and air pollution, soil erosion, natural disasters are not just linked to climate change, uh, uh, not linked to climate change, sorry, and deforestation. These all affect women and indigenous groups disproportionately because they have the least capacity to cope with things like health problems caused by pollution and the economic fallout of losing crop production because of poor soil quality.
So I thought that was a really good piece of research, good to go back and look again and see what's changed and what's the same. And uh, I wish more people would do it. And on that note, have a great weekend, everybody, and roll on 2021.